0: Well, that was good to have some musical brightness, but I have to take us back into a kind of deep and dark text uh, once again. If you've got your Bibles with you today, I want to invite you once again to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to be looking at this passage once again. It's on page 226 of the Blue Bibles, if you want to follow along there or printed in your bulletins. Uh, as I said last week, uh, we're going to go back into the text Uh, where we were last week because there's more that we want to dig out of this passage. It's a troubling and difficult text. And if you weren't here with us last week, what I want to encourage you to do is just listen to the sermon online. It's available online and you can catch up to where we are uh, this week. But last week as we went through it, we saw how the text sets up a very clear contrast between two families in this case, between the family of Elkanah, Hannah, and Samuel on the one side, and then on the other side, the family of Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And we see on the one hand, with the first, we see a faithful service and worship as a family, and on the other hand, we see their unfaithful worship and service of the Lord, and we get a taste in this text of the consequences of both of those actions. It is a contrast between good and evil, and in addition to looking at that last week, we began to explore some of the issues that come up in a text like this. For example, the issue of the nature of the sin that is involved here. Why are these judgments so harsh, and what can we say about the type of sin? We likewise talked about some issues of responsibility. How do we understand who's responsible for what's taking place here? The text says a number of things about that, and so we tried to explore some of those things last week. We looked at the text on the micro level, which is to say the the level of parents and children and relationships within a family but the text also has a macro level to it. It deals as well with issues of, to put it in our language, the church in the state because in Eli in particular you have someone who represents the priesthood who serves before the tent of meeting or this proto temple that has been established there. Uh, And at the same time, Eli is noted as a judge, that is to say, one of the rulers in Israel. So you've got micro and macro level issues that are going on in this text. And we've got to come back to it today with a few more questions as we press on, even though it is, in fact, scary and troubling. I'm going to pick up the reading at verse 27, uh, and I'm going to continue once again through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then? Do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, declares the Lord, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever." The only one of you, whom I shall not cut off from my altar, shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you, both of them shall die on the same day. And... I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel. Of bread. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help. We need your guidance. We need your spirit to lead us into the truth, and we need your spirit to apply it well and appropriately to our lives. Search us, O oh Lord. See if there be any grievous way in us, and lead us in the way everlasting as we consider your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I titled the sermon today, Take Care. Now, that should not be understood in the sense of saying goodbye to someone, saying farewell to someone, take care, I'll see you later. Instead, the intention that I had there was rather to take heed, to beware. And I drew the phrase specifically from Hebrews chapter 3 and a a few verses I'm going to read to you right now. I want to use in just this introduction here kind of the book of Hebrews as a way to take us back into this text today and help us to understand what we've got here. But hear these words from Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The writer of the book of Hebrews is very comfortable with taking the Old Testament, the stories, the teachings of the Old Testament, and applying them to the New Testament, to the New Covenant Church, that is to say, to us. And he does that in three ways that I think we can summarize very quickly and very easily. In the first place, when the writer of Hebrews looks at the old covenant, he looks at all of the ways that it foreshadows and points to Jesus. The the offices that are there, the events that took place, they all lead us to see and understand Jesus. And so he points that out to us and we will get to that joyfully in the text that we've got before us today. Secondly, the way he uses the Old Testament is familiar to us if you think for a moment of Hebrews chapter 11. So one of the things that he does in in, in and throughout the book is give us the examples of the Old Testament saints for us to emulate. He holds them up as examples of men and women of faith and encourages us to walk in a manner that is according to this, in the way that we've seen. In fact, one of his examples is Samuel in Hebrews chapter 11, although as soon as he mentions the name Samuel, he says, but I don't have time to expand on that right now. We'll expand on it for him uh, as the book of Samuel continues. But positive examples. The third way that the writer of the book of Hebrews looks at the Old Testament is that it serves to be for the people of God in the new covenant a warning. Take care, take heed, beware, be warned. Don't do what you see them doing. Learn the lesson that is embedded in the text and hear the warning. The gospel of Jesus Christ is to be sure a gospel of great comfort to us it is good news it is a gospel that has come to us and is a gospel of peace and we have the joy of singing about that of proclaiming that to one another of enjoying that peace and that good news together but the fact that the gospel is all of those things cannot mean therefore that warnings don't apply to us anymore. For the Church of Jesus Christ, warnings cannot be anathema to us. Now we may feel like warnings are kind of—they're kind of Old Testament-ish, they're kind of old-fashioned, they're kind of 200 years in the past, they kind of belong to something else. But throughout the New Testament whether it's Jesus or whether it's Paul or whether it's the writer of Hebrews or whether it's Jesus speaking to the churches in the letters to them in the book of Revelation, it is replete with warnings about staying faithful to the Lord's. Warnings cannot be anathema to us. Warning is obviously needed for those who do not believe in Jesus. For those who do not confess faith in Jesus, warning is appropriate. Danger ahead. You have got to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved or face the judgment of God on your own. You have to be warned. But warning does not belong exclusively to those who do not believe in Jesus. It belongs likewise, as we have seen in the text that I have read for us already this morning, it belongs likewise to those of us who belong to the visible church who are members of the visible church of God. Warnings are for believers. And so, if we feel unsettled, for example, after a sermon like last week, where we looked at these things in particular, if you feel or felt unsettled this week, as I did all week, Imagine you were a pastor preaching on this one. It's it's even worse than it felt for you, let me tell you. That's good. It's a gift. The feeling of trouble is a gift. Don't push it aside. Don't just quickly go to something that makes you feel immediately better. Sometimes we need to hear this. And sometimes we need to let it do let it do its work in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. If you push it aside, if you quickly go, ah, warnings, I don't need to listen to those. That's for somebody else. You're not allowing the word of God to do what it wants to do. To dig around and to sometimes make us feel uncomfortable about things. And so we return to this text this morning with more questions and a fat, flashing yellow sign in front of us that says take care, take care, caution as you approach this text. I want to attempt to ask and answer three more questions from this text today that I find troubling. Troubling, even after we looked at it last week. Here are the questions: One, how do we respond to the severe the severity of the judgment that we see in this text before us that I just read for us? Secondly, what lessons can we learn about covenant continuation or discontinuation? Which is to say, how does the faith move from generation to generation? What what can we expect? What can we hope for? Uh, what should we think about the transmission of the faith? From one generation to another and three is there any hope is there any hope that is to be found in this passage at all particularly in verse 35 of the passage that I read for us is there anything to be found there that we can possibly cling to so the first question is with regards to the judgment and the discipline that we see here what do we say about this kind of severity you've heard me read it now twice And it kind of begins in earnest in verse 31. Your house is being cut off. No house for old men. No country for old men. no house for old men in Eli's future. I'm going to leave one. And the one that I'm going to leave will be left to see, to be envious, and to grieve at the judgment that I have leveled and will level against your household. Your sons will die on the same day. That will be a sign to you. Will that get your attention, Eli? Your sons will die on the same day. Any remaining, and this is the last verse, 36, any of those who happen to be remaining in your household, when they see the new priest that I have installed, They will go and beg, beg to be in a place where they can get a morsel, where they can just get a little bit of bread. We'll see some of this fulfilled, some of it fulfilled in the next two chapters, not all of it. And as we saw last week, perhaps even more devastating than those awful punishments, which I just rehearsed for us once again is the lack of a mediator for those sins. The lack of someone to intercede on behalf. And and this is confirmed for us in uh, chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. There can't be worse words than that. There can't be to hear no possibility for atonement. Perhaps your mind right now, or even last week or throughout the week, uh, is doing or has done what mine did as I was preparing for us both of the past two weeks. Perhaps you find yourself going, the pastor is now going to explain to us why this isn't what it seems why it's really not this bad, it's okay, don't take this as it sounds, but I think it's as bad as it sounds. I don't have a way to get around it. Yahweh is holy. Yahweh is just. Yahweh punishes covenant breakers. Sin has consequences. Sin has multi-generational consequences to it. If you think for two seconds about it, you will realize the reality of that. And the consequences of sin, the punishment for sin from the holy judge suit, they fit the particular covenant breaker. As I have said, These are priests in the household of God. They're not just anybody. They're priests in the household of God. Earlier, and and right now we're looking at Eli's two sons, this is not a new story. It happened to Aaron's two sons as well. When they offered a different incense to the Lord, and the Lord consumed them by fire, you, you kind of think to yourself, Whoa, that's kind of harsh. And we read this. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. In other words, in particular, Aaron, your sons are near me. They're near me. They're physically near me, as were Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. Near to the household of God, and he will be sanctified, he will not be trifled with by those who are near to him. The consequences suit the offender, the covenant breaker, who in this case is, are the priests, and they suit the sin as well. This is blasphemy against the Lord. It is false worship before the Lord. It is leading the people astray before the Lord in worship. And it is all the other things that we saw last week as well. And it is, and let me be clear with this, it is sustained and it is sin for which they are unrepentant. They're not sorry at all about it. They have practiced it for year after year after year at the house of God, and hardening happened, and hardening can happen. We might think of hardening as kind of an Old Testament thing, a Pharaoh-like kind of thing, yeah. Pharaoh's heart got hardened, other hearts got hardened, but the writer of the book of Hebrews says, beware lest your hearts be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's not some old covenant warning. That's a new covenant warning to the people of God. Beware, hardening can take place. You trifle with sin for long enough and your heart will become hardened. And you know whose fault it is? It's your fault. You are culpable for your own hardening, even if it is sealed by the Lord. All that is left then, All that becomes left when we're thinking about this judgment, all that is left, Hebrews 10, 27, the New Testament reading that we had earlier in the service, is a fearful expectation of judgment for those who are near. Listen to Ralph Davis. Be careful of your response to such teaching. Some of you may become Yahweh's prosecutors alleging he is deficient in mercy. Others may be intellectually curious about the mechanics of hardening. At what precise point in sin's progress does it become impossible to repent? Both the critic and the curious are wrong. Our place is not to question or to comprehend, but to tremble before a God who can justly make sinners deaf, to the very call of repentance. The proper response to the severe judgment is tremble. That's very different than dismiss. Tremble. Take care. Don't sin deliberately. Don't be dismissive of your sin. We must take care to allow, and this is especially now speaking to us as the children of God, to allow fatherly discipline, the fatherly discipline of the Lord to do its work in our lives, whatever form, whatever shape that discipline takes. Perhaps it's the discipline of parents to children. Perhaps it's the discipline of the church to a member of the congregation. Perhaps it's the guilt and the shame that can come from sin, the rebuke of a friend maybe the natural consequences of sin, or simply the difficulties in life, whatever form the discipline of the Heavenly Father comes into your life, whatever form it takes, the call here is let it do its work. Don't take two Tylenol immediately. Let it do its work I'm sorry that's not a general statement about medications just don't mishear what I'm saying there that was a metaphor Um, let it do what it needs to do in your life warning and correction what they do they push us to strive for holiness so that we don't end up being hardened and being cut off When you see them, don't dismiss them. Listen to them and recognize the love of a heavenly father in your life. Proverbs 17, a wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Listen. So what can we say about this judgment? We can say that it's hard, that it's just, that it's righteous, and that it is equitable, it's fitting. Second, what lessons can we learn about covenant, continuation, discontinuation? What are the promises of God? What about our children? What about the church in a succeeding generation? One generation from now? Another pastor removed from me? Another set of elders in the church? What can we say about the promises of God as it continues from generation to generation. I don't want to shy away from this question. We see the continuity, and we rejoice in it, surely, right? We rejoice in the continuity that took place between Elkanah and Hannah and Samuel, and we rejoice appropriately in that continuity. And then, therefore, we mourn immediately when, if you were here last week, I read for us from 1 Samuel chapter 8, about the fact that Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways, but they perverted justice. What do we say about how the covenant continues? In verse 30 of this text, we read what I think is one of the scariest things that you can find in scripture, where it says this, therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised, dot, 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 but. What do you do with that? What do you do with the promises of God, but? We rehearse the promises of God. Ian's walking right now with Hannah, who just heard those promises of God addressed to her. Eliana's right back in the back row as well. I don't know where Henry is right now, down at the nursery. We rehearse those promises of God, and we rejoice in those promises of God. I promised, but? Yikes! Yikes! I think at least what we can say is the primary lesson for us is a warning. It is a warning that we've seen in other places before, but it is a warning against being presumptuous. As parents and as children, as church leaders, don't be presumptuous. To be sure, and I I, I want to affirm this, the promises of God are good and they are true and they are for us of great value and, in the new covenant, those promises and the ordinances by which the promises are ministered to you, which is to say the preaching of the word of God and the administration of the sacraments, the way that that is ministered to you, though it is much simpler in form than it was in the old covenant, is in fact much more spiritually effective for us than it was in the old covenant. It's better, more efficacious for us. What God does with these simple means now. They are appropriately in our lives to engender confidence and assurance. And of course, the book of Hebrews, even in the sections that we've read, are full of discussions about confidence and about a proper assurance in the work of Jesus Christ and the promises of God. Confidence is good, assurance is good as long as they do not lead to complacency and license. That's the danger. That's the danger of confidence, that you become complacent, that you look at your life, whether your life as a parent or whether you look at your life as a child or as a pastor, and you're okay. You feel like it's all right, I don't have to work so hard I don't have to do all these things. I'm in and everything's okay. License, of course, is a little bit different than complacency. It's basically the idea that, well, I can do what I want because I'm in and I'm okay. Now, most of us are a little bit too sophisticated to make that statement just out loud or even say it to ourselves, but we act that way. We act that way. It's fine. I can really. I would never say it, but I know it. I know I can do what I want and be okay. We have to see how dangerous that is. We have to see how dangerous it is from the text that we're looking at right now and hear how Paul summarizes it in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Here's what he says. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. There are two routes to repentance that are articulated them for us here. One route to repentance is the discipline of the Lord. When you feel the discipline of the Lord, repent. And the other route, when you see the kindness and the patience of God towards you, repent. They both go to the same place. They're driving us to the same thing. Do not be presumptuous call out upon the Lord. For years, Eli's bad parenting and his unemployed priestly and judicial authority, Eli was a judge in Israel, for years, going against that, not doing it, not employing the authority didn't seem to matter. Things kind of went on. Day after day, year after year, the same. It didn't seem to matter until it did. For years, Hophni and Phinehas, their very great sins seemed to go unchecked. They got away with it until they didn't. God's almighty, and he is sovereign, and our actions and our hearts matter. And so, parents, remember the promises and remember the vows that you have taken at baptism. Underneath of the Lord's sovereignty in terms of the way that he works in this world, you matter, parents. You matter. Pray like you matter. Children of believers, whatever age, Children of pastors. Whatever age you may be, don't take the things of God lightly and casually because of your familiarity with them. Our last question is this. Is there any hope in this darkness? Is there is there just a glimmer? Give me a glimmer somewhere of hope in the midst of this to explore that I want to look at this verse 35 and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind and I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever there's hope here right there's hope that's given for the people of Israel it's not very hopeful for Eli it's kind of judgment against Eli but there's hope. For the people of Israel here, it's a future-based hope, as hope always is. It's a replacement for Eli's family, a priest, to borrow language from a later part of this book, a priest after God's own heart. That's what the promise is here. I'm going to raise up a priest after my own heart, and this priest that I raise up will go in and out before my anointed. Now we have to pause here for a moment on this, word, on this idea of my anointed because this is now the second time in this chapter that we've confronted this term, this idea of God's anointed being here. We, we first saw it at the end of Hannah's prayer in chapter 2 verse 10 where we read, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That was the first pra- place that we saw the phrase being used. Now, priests in the Old Covenant were anointed. So anointed could mean priest, but obviously it can't mean that here. It can't mean that here because in this case, this priest is going in and out before my anointed. So the priest is one thing. The anointed in this case is another thing or another person that is out there. So it is best for us to understand what does my anointed mean here in verse 35? Well, it means the same thing as it did earlier. It's an expectation, it's a prophetic expectation of a coming kingship and of a coming king in particular as, as if you know the story of Saul and then especially of David as it moves forward. That's the expectation that is here long before the people have or will request a king. Being set up, it's being anticipated right here. But who is then the faithful priest? Who's that person that we're talking about? Because that's the one who's promised here. Who's the faithful priest? Well, immediate reference would seem to point us, of course, to Samuel. You look at Samuel, Samuel is the faithful priest, he's the one that's set in contrast here. And that makes sense, there's a certain validity to it that Samuel will minister in the house of the Lord and fill that role. However, there are two things that check us a little bit on the idea of Samuel, and they are these. One, at the end of chapter 3, and I know we're not there yet, but we'll get to it, Samuel is particularly noted and established as a prophet. He is a priest, but he is particularly pointed to as a prophet. And the second problem that we have is Samuel's sons. They don't walk in his ways, and so this this good news of a faithful priest ends pretty quickly if Samuel is the one, and so what we see in scripture is that later, and this is in the book of 1 Kings, but later what will take place is Solomon will fulfill the rest of this prophecy and remove Eli's household from the priesthood and establish a new priest whose name happens to be Zadok. A new line, a new family, will replace Eli here. But having said that, we have to see beyond these initial fulfillments, these initial horizons that are here, and we have to see beyond it for two reasons. One is the word forever. I will establish him. He will go in and out before my anointed forever. And you kind of look at that and go, that's a strange thing to say about anybody. Forever seems like a really long time. The second problem that we have is the word faithful. Because I tell you what's going to happen to the line of Zadok and to everybody else is there's going to be unfaithful priests. There's going to be priests who fatten themselves. That's the story of the rest of the Old Testament as well. They're not going to stay true. They're not going to stay faithful. Even Aaron's sons didn't. And so we have to see, whether it's Samuel or Zadok, we have to see that as being a temporary fulfillment to this, but there is an eternal expectation that is attached to this. We need an eternally faithful high priest in the house of God to go in and out before the anointed in the house of God. Stay with me. I know it's late in the sermon, but stay with me. You don't have to turn to these passages right now. If you you want to, you can write the references down and look at them later, because I've got to take you a little bit more biblical theology. There's a statement that is found in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, the Lord, through Moses, says that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. The Lord will raise up a prophet. In the text that we just read, there is a promise. I will raise up for myself a faithful high priest, a faithful priest in the house of God. I will raise him up. Move forward, 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is God's covenant promise to David. Again, don't look right now so you don't get lost in it. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 through 13. God articulating the covenant promises to his king David says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Three promises. All the same word, raise up. Raise up. Raise up. I will do it. Hint? That word when it gets translated into Greek is the word for resurrection. I, I I'll raise up. I will raise up one. And yet with us idea forever, we've got this three offices that are promised the prophet, the priest, and the king. But what we will find throughout the rest of Scripture is that there will be false prophets, there will be unfaithful priests, and there will be evil kings. They won't do what it seems like they have been promised that they will do for the people of God. They will be found wanting. And so God must do what men cannot. And all of the offices will be fulfilled in one son who is raised up to be the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. He is the eternal word of God made flesh to declare to us prophetically the will of God for our salvation. He is Jesus, our great high priest, after the order of Aaron, no, after the order of Melchizedek, who has neither beginning of days nor end of days. An eternal priesthood belongs to this high priest, but he was made like us. He wasn't a priest that miraculously kind of spun down from heaven and came on earth. He was made like us so that he would be a merciful and faithful high priest over the household of God. That's a direct quote from the book of Hebrews. And he is the eternal, the almighty king. He is the ancient of days who humbled himself and as a man was crucified. He was, in fact, the faithful son suffering the fatal judgment of all of the failed sons of Adam. Of all of the failed prophets and priests. And kings, crucified, resurrected, raised up, ascended, and now established forever, not just as God, but as the God man, king and priest and prophet in one person. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we have hope. We have hope. We have greater confidence for ourselves, for our church in a generation or a generation, for the church of Jesus Christ, for our children, and for our children's children, because that which was anticipated, that which was foreshadowed, that which was, which was spoken of a faithful high priest to come, he has come. And he now ministers on behalf of the people of God. He's not Eli. He's not Hophni. He's not Phinehas. He's not Samuel. He's not Zadok and not any of theirs. He is the very son of God, the son of Mary, who now sits in that place. The storm warning of judgment remains. But the shelter is secure. The shelter is amply provisioned with plenty of room, with lots of love, with open doors. Take care. Be warned. Take heed. And enter the shelter through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is how you get into the house of God. You cannot... Weather the storm in your house. You cannot stay in your house. I don't care how orderly it is. I don't care how secure, how firm it may seem in this world. You must take yourself and your family and all you've got and go to the household wherein the faithful son reigns. Serves and declares the truth of the good news of God, of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where this takes us. It takes us to call on that one. Let's pray. Lord, we have no hope in and of ourselves. Give that which you have commanded that we might walk in your ways that we might love the ancient paths, that we might be warned appropriately and comforted well in you, Jesus, the faithful son who has gone before us. For we pray in your name. Amen.